Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guest about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the textiles artist Tessa Brown. Tessa studied anthropology at university, but on graduating, she began making clothes and set up her own bespoke garment making business, which she successfully ran for nearly 30 years. During that time, Tessa started to work with artists, using her dressmaking skills on collaborative artistic projects. She recently decided to explore the fine artist within herself, so she returned to university and has just completed an MA at Goldsmiths in South London. I was lucky enough to visit her final show and I was completely blown away by her honest, brave creativity. I hope we'll have a little something from that show at the end of the podcast. And I know we have some fascinating pieces of jewellery to look at. Some of it quite literally unbelievable too. This one's going to be fun. Welcome everybody to the podcast. This is a token. I have my guest today, Tessa Brown. Tessa, am I okay calling you a textiles artist? Yeah. I think you're a bona fide textiles artist now. Yeah. Tessa actually studied anthropology and then set up business making clothes. They were kind of sculptural Mm -hmm. clothes. And then you started working with some artists and you were interested in awnings. I've seen some of your Mm -hmm. awnings, which were amazing. And you have just completed your MA at Goldsmiths. Mm-hmm. And I went to see the show, which was fantastic and amazing to see. And how brilliant to be doing an MA. Um, but you know, At my great age. <laughs> just a little bit further on in life. That, yeah. that, the lovely thing about um, art is that the learning and the education never finishes. And so mm. it's an amazingly brave thing to do. So I'm very happy to have you. Welcome Thank to you. This is a Token, Tessa. Thank um, you very, very much. I'm going to just start off by saying we're going to put photos of some of these pieces so you'll be able to see them. But basically, it's like a museum. My table here at my home is covered with amazing pieces. I'm going to jangle things. It's just amazing. So we've got lots of jewellery. I've got a feeling that there's one or two pieces that we will spend most of the time talking about, Tessa. But if we can just start by saying, how was your experience of doing an MA and putting together the degree show? The experience of doing the degree show was, in truth, actually very traumatic because during these times, we haven't had very much contact with our tutors and... The feeling of being adrift, you know, and not having support. Although Goldsmiths promised all their BA and MA students a show, there was a sort of sense that the show could be called off at any moment. There was even a kind of sense that maybe they shouldn't be giving us a show because it wouldn't be safe for the people of Lewisham. Anyway, we did it. And I have to say I'm delighted that I pulled out all the stops and just decided to make some new work sort of two weeks before the show yeah. and and yeah and showed it and uh, and it was really wonderful to be in a real life 
art show well, with a lot of people um, was, coming to visit. It was very impressive. I think we'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping you wrote some words mm-hmm. which kind of choked me up a bit because uh-huh. we're, we're at similar stages of life. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping we'll come back to that. And I'm hoping you might read these words at the end of this, if you don't mind. I would love to, yeah. But I just want to wind things back. And if you could just set up a picture of your early life, because it's interesting to know how you ended up being where you are now. Mm-hmm. And I understand that your mother was creative and worked with fabric. So was she a clothes maker or...? My mum did fashion at the Royal College in the 50s. It was post-war, so she she learnt all of the new tailoring techniques that were kind of promoted by Dior. And um, she learnt all of those skills and crafts. She knew about weaving. She knew everything there was to know about cloth, but she also made all her own clothes. She made all of mine and my three brothers' clothes. Uh, She didn't dress my father, but she made sure he went to a fantastic tailor and she made sure he chose beautiful cloth. I grew up in the West Country in a place called Stroud, which has got um, a history of, um, well, it's very important in the sort of textile tradition. So they made billiard cloth, scarlet guards cloth, and also a big tradition of sort of military uniform. Today, there's a movement of creatives from Indeed. London to Stroud, so there's a lot going on there. It's been going on for about 50 years. Oh, has yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it has. I've just discovered it. No, so no, no, it, behind, it is. Behind the times has happened. No, 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 it has. Uh, Stroud was considered a dump when I was growing up there in the 70s. Huh. Uh, I grew up the... in Ipswich, and you know, I think places are... Do you want to drop more tea? There's only a little bit. Yeah, a little it's bit. It's cold and overbrewed. No, but... no, no, that'd be great. So, yeah, so yeah. that's where I grew up, and I, and yeah, we lived in a cool. village just outside Stroud. And my dad, uh, he worked away from home. He's from Gloucester, he's from that area, from a sort of reasonably well to do middle class family in Gloucester. You've mentioned your father, so yeah. shall we look at the first piece? Piece of jewellery. Which, which is what I think is one of the most amazing pieces of jewellery that I've come across maybe we should rewind a little bit and just Mm. explain the circumstances the owner of this jewelry and how come it was left to you okay so the circumstances by which my stepmother acquired this jewelry my father met my stepmother shortly after she had returned from a trip to ecuador with her then lover who was a treasure hunter and he had tried to kill her in this... the jungle <laughs> is it all a bit too much so you don't you know where to start with this story it. it's such an intriguing story mm. that um i'm gonna ask our patient listener to stick with us because it seems unbelievable but it's all true in fact some bits of the story are kind of unbelievable because it strays into the land of supernatural, doesn't it, at certain points? Oh, what, Um, in the book? Did you read the book? Yeah, 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 I did. Yes, so basically my stepmother was, obviously before she met my dad, she was with someone very exciting who was a Texan treasure hunter uh, who apparently Indiana Jones is sort of supposed to be based on him. I knew that because we all love Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, But... What's what strikes me is is this guy sounds like a complete bastard. Yeah, he was a total bastard. <laughs> and then the Jones is very lovable. So they've obviously That's true. Hollywood filter has made him made him one totally. Of so the woman that was to become your stepmother, mm. did she marry um, this she man? She apparently did marry him, but I looked at something else online actually before I came here and yeah. he was already married. So when so. she married him, he was already married. So I think the marriage was probably not legitimate. So we're rewinding. Can we have your stepmother's name? Because then we can talk about Her name people. was Anne Jennings. And then the Indiana <laughs> was... He was called Howard Jennings. Howard, yeah. Whether they were Jennings or not is a, is a 
question, isn't it? Because the marriage might not have worked. So how did they get together? Uh, they got together at some drinks party somewhere fancy in London after my stepmother had recently divorced her millionaire husband Mm -hmm. and um, he was serially unfaithful to her and they met at this drinks party and this very attractive man basically said I'm going to look for pirate treasure in the Caribbean would you like to join me which is what she did. So I'm imagining that if she divorced an extremely rich man she might I've had, had a bit of a cash. A bit of cash. And do you think that Howard was a treasure hunter in more ways than one? Do you think that he might have thought that her money would have come in handy for his um, defin- expeditions? Yeah. Apparently it definitely did. Okay. So, so there's a little bit of talk about the money in the book that she's written, not in the book he's written. We have two books here, by the way. Um, there's a great book called uh, Roatan Odyssey by Anne Jennings Brown, which I actually think is quite a tricky read. It's a terrible book. <laughs> All right, she wasn't a great writer. But the story is amazing. And we Mm. also have a book called The Treasure Hunter, written by Howard Jennings, but probably written by Robin Moore. So um, Robin Moore and Howard Jennings wrote The Treasure Hunter. So we have the mother-in-law and the mother-in-law's husband's books here. And there are some great um, pictures in them. It's it's kind of worth... The piece of jewellery that we're looking at, the first piece of jewellery that Tess has bought, it's actually a frog, but it's kind of a rather stylized South American type of frog. And it's in this gorgeous, delicious, kind of rose gold, isn't it, Tessa? I don't Tessa? know. But it's a, it's a beautiful, soft, antique gold colour. And it's been slightly badly soldered onto a ring shank. So it's been made into a ring. I don't think it was a ring originally. We've got the book here and it's, it's quite a typical South American prehistory. Pre-Columbian yeah. Inca. Yeah. And it's from a place called Coaque, which Howard Jennings had researched what the Spaniards, uh, Pizarro and his crew, had basically lifted from this ancient Inca city. I mean, tons and tons and tons of gold, but apparently there was an awful lot that was left behind. And that's what he and um, my stepmother Anne went out to then try and find some of the hordes that had either been stashed and hidden or, you know, were yet to be or just left. So there was almost a sort of mythical Pizarran stash of gold that was, some of it was left there. And what year did they set off? I think it was 1970, hang on, I've got it in here. Well, it's, if, was it sort of... It's mid- 71. Yeah, okay, early 70s, right, okay, so I can remember the early 70s. And I and think uh, he might have been, done a previous trip in the late 60s, right. and I think that's what this book is written about. Yeah, yeah. cool. Okay, so she must have found him very attractive and romantic and glamorous and Mm. then to set off on this trip was obviously brave you know maybe she was thinking with her heart rather than her head when she set off for the american it's really hard to know it's really hard to know she because she left behind two children in england as well yeah and to make herself vulnerable to not having enough money to get back to see her children or have her children come and see her seems a very risky strategy yeah so i'm thinking he must have been absolutely devastatingly attractive for her yeah but then she told all these stories about how awful he was you know and how i mean he did try to kill her but she writes about that in detail in the book has he ever talked about that because um no he died in a plane crash before any of us met him okay we'll we'll get there most of of the people she (laughs) she seemed to know sort of had 
difficult deaths, you know, yeah. quite often in planes. So... It's the curse of the Inca gold. Yeah, it? but it also means that then her story is her story yeah. and that there isn't anyone else you can ask. Yeah. Okay, but, so, so they've set off on this expedition. Expedition, and, and they meet various villagers and indigenous people, and in the book, I mean, they're all treated fairly shabbily yeah. by, uh, by the writer, yeah. <laughs> and uh, not regarded as having any kind of sense at all. But then there's just generally a lot of helping themselves to whatever they find. She had studied pottery, actually, at Leeds, so she, wow. had, a, she had an arts background as well. She was actually a very skilled illustrator That's as well. That's just what you want when you're cutting a swathe through the South American jungle. Quite. A potter. Yeah, so she she was much more interested in the pots than anything else. Although there is a comment that she makes in the book about coming across a load of emeralds that had been drilled to make beads. And she just said, why did those Incas have to drill holes in those emeralds? Oh, stupid Incas. Drilling holes and everything like that. So they found they found the treasure basically. They, they found did a find site. they found, they found treasure. treasure. They paid off a whole bunch of uh, sort of officials in the capital Quito, like the yeah. the Quito Museum, which then gave them uh, license to take everything and yeah. well him license apparently to go off and sell it in the auction houses of Geneva. Right. So, so they uh, loaded up, what, some donkeys with, with all this treasure? Well, I don't know that there was absolutely tons of it. But, I mean, she, Anne did bring back some of it for herself. So she had some of the pots and there was an amazing necklace that was made with bones and had a golden sort of amulet in the centre. Yeah, yeah. And this ring was part of that hoard. Okay, so, um, so they got there, they found the hoard and mm. they paid off everyone that needed to be paid off yeah and then they scarpered and, and scarpered and they did they make but it he back? tried to kill her just before leaving the site so they had a an indigenous guide called atahualpa which is the name of an inca king and uh he had been dismissed this is all in her book he had been dismissed that night leaving just Anne and howard yeah. in the jungle together with, with all with, the snakes and the uh, and with hammocks. all the with all the loot with all the loot um, packed into bags and I ready to so. return to the UK, and he wanted it all for himself. Yeah, yeah. What did he do? He basically uh, turned a gun on her and said, "You know, I'm going to kill you now," sort of thing. And this is this was also the second time he'd attempted to do that. Apparently, he had tendency to sort of lose it okay. uh, big time and. Again, you know, it's very hard to know, really. But well, what's Anne's story? I mean, ha- Anne's story is that he survived. tried to kill her, but that she had the presence to lift up the stool that Atahualpa had made her because she was so saddle sore from yeah. having riding up riding up the hill. Yeah. She picked up the stool and she just hurled it at him, but and twisted it and broke his trigger finger apparently, and took the gun off him. She had a gun. She had a gun too. They both had guns. And um, then she basically waited for Atahualpa to come in the morning, who was going to guide them both down the mountain. Yeah. Well, obviously, it would have just been Howard, Mm. because Anne would have been taken by an ocelot or Mm, a jaguar or something. He would have had some story. He would have had a story that she'd she'd been mauled by by something. Jeez. Anyway, so that's. um, So Atahualpa came back the next morning. 
and and guided them both back down the mountain. How uh, with two guns, him with a broken foot. They rode, uh, so Howard was in the middle with no gun. Uh, Atawalpa was at the front with one gun and Anne was at the back with the other gun. So Atawalpa was, <laughs> on, was on her side? It, he, it, yeah, he she befriended, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She befriended him. Phew. So, so it's just so brilliant. So, so um, they made it, to, to, I guess, to they the made coast it to Quito, and to she Quito. describes yeah. being in a in the sort of intercontinental hotel with two bathrooms, having had spent the night, you know, nights in jungles and all yeah. of that sort of thing. And then him going off with all the gold to Geneva, and then she just had a few pots. Mm. Yeah, anyway. I mean, she's very trusting because presumably he said, "Darling, I'll trusting take I'll foolish. take the gold to Geneva, and I promise that we'll I'll be back with the cat, and we'll live happily ever after." Or something. She, I, I, my sense is that it was a totally abusive relationship, mm. and that she was kind of into. I think she was intimidated by him. Except she was able to. But she did break manage, his finger and take the gun off him. She broke his finger and, and took the gun off him. Yeah, so there's, there's a, she had a sense of her own, but knowing how to protect herself. So yeah, I'm, I've kind of got this mixed image. She's a she's an artist, a, a creative woman. Yeah. She is a privileged woman. She's obviously kind of hopelessly romantic, or completely sort of fell in love, or was able to be persuaded by a guy, and yet she can fight and ride and adventure across South America. Okay, so she's complex. Yeah. He's a bastard. She's complex. Yeah, and then so then essentially, I mean, he. I think he was obviously quite frightening and threatening mm. and uh, she desperately missed her children and she managed to get enough money together to get back to England where she needed to... Uh, I think she did various jobs as an estate agent and mm. uh, an interior designer and that's how she met my dad okay. uh, because she was um, she got the job to redo the interior of a hotel in Bury St Edmunds that my dad was living in because he oh. was working there. Mm. My dad had a suite of rooms at the top of the hotel and um, they met there and they obviously fell for each other. And um, how, old, how old were you? Because this must have been a very difficult I time was, for you. I was 30 but didn't know anything about it and neither did my okay. mother at this point. Okay. But then my dad obviously couldn't sort of, you know, couldn't contain himself oh. and decided that he had to he had to leave my mum, which was utterly devastating for us. So he got together with Anne. He did, he, I mean, he obviously was having a bit of an affair with her for um, some months before he said he was going to leave mum. I feel like we ought to call this piece of jewellery bittersweet or something because the story behind it is so complex mm. and, and has so many twists and turns and mm. it involves attempted murder and abuse and... I know. Treasure hunting it's and horrible. Indiana Jones. And then the the actual real story for you is mm. also one of, I guess, pain and it and, is. and rejection. So it's really complicated. I when I first met her though, and it was probably only like four years after this trip, three mm. or four, three years mm. after this trip, I remember thinking, Wow, done all those things. You know, you've travelled all around South America, you've you know, you've been a treasure hunter you've lived by she she had lived by herself yeah. for about two or three years or something in this 
tiny remote place on the little island in the Caribbean off the coast of Honduras. Why did she go back? Well, she basically had built a house with Howard on Mm. the island with her own money. Mm-hmm. But he had basically got title to the house or something. Mm. So in other words, it wasn't hers. Mm-hmm. So in a way, in a sense, she was constantly losing her place on on the planet, her home. She was losing her home all yeah. the time. Am I right in thinking that this is the point at which the story gets like even more bizarre and you have to try and separate what's truth and what might be oh what well, when she met the ghost yeah because this is this is what fascinates me is is she was so she's back living on this on the island on the it, island and there was a, a danish ghost in south america called Moller. yeah and she'd built this house that, that had fallen into disrepair she'd gone back to repair it that's and, right and live on her own so this is a remote yeah you could only get there by boat i i stayed there myself probably i've been there yeah, yeah, yeah. I stayed there myself, maybe uh, in 1978. So, uh, and it, it was all, and it had been uh, demolished again by hurricanes. Um, did you stay there with her? No, I was with a friend. We were traveling. We were in our gap here, traveling yeah, down cool. through Central America, and uh, yeah, we had to get a boat there. There was no regular boat there. We were innocents, and someone chartered a boat and then dumped us there. And you were fine, you know. That's we were the, completely that's the... fine. We were totally fine, but I mean, it, it was a very weird place to be. And she lived there for years. She lived there for not, I wouldn't say years, but for quite a long time. Yeah. And she painted and she drew and she got to know. I mean, the sort of people who ended up in that place were either drug dealers or the anti-drug people. You know, there yeah. were sort of spies. And, it was a very yeah. weird place. Yeah. But then there were also the kind of the aristocracy of Central America that she would make sure she would get to know. And they would come out to those islands as for yeah. recreation with their yachts and she would make sure she would know them and then she'd get commissioned to do a mural in one of their airports or something, you know. And what part did our pirate ghost have to play in the story? I think he was a, like a companion. Okay. And... Um, so her boyfriend. Yeah, maybe her boyfriend. Certainly safer <laughs> than the other ones. He's probably, yeah, it's a, lot, a great choice compared to a murdering adventurer. He's yeah. a pirate ghost. Cool, okay. So this is the other thing that I think is really interesting and a bit of an anomaly. So the ghost thing. But the fact she did automatic drawing and automatic writing, which you associate more with sort of surrealists. What um, Can you explain what that means? So, so that's when you... You sit with a pen and paper and you just allow your hand to move over the paper and suddenly this image appears. Yeah. So is that a bit like sort of a a Ouija board type thing where you're sort of channeling the She was completely into Ouija board as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. And I did Ouija board with her and it was a pretty scary experience. Not not in the ruined house on the island. No, it was on on a house that she and my dad later built in a village on a little quay on the island. And uh, she was a very different person when she was there. She was at home in this environment, in this kind of what to me seemed like not an obvious place for a white middle class English person to sort of settle down. She was completely at home there. And uh, so we did the Ouija board and I couldn't believe that the glass was moving around so much, you know, under my hand. Yeah. Uh, And I thought, she's just pushing it, you know, she's she's pushing it around. But anyway, it was quite... Did um, Pirate Ghost come and say hello or...? I don't know if he did. All I can remember is that for me, the name Ruskin came up. Mm, Um, Yeah, which is really odd. Anyway, I, I don't know. 
Okay, so I like that. Um, the pirate ghost, he was a famous pirate, wasn't he? I don't that, know if he died? was. Was actually. he famous because he came back as a ghost? Or? I don't know if he was. Though. Okay. Um, I can't remember that. We'll there was a very up. famous pirate that was associated with that island called Captain Morgan. Oh, um, was, and did they make rum named after him? Yeah, probably. Okay. This, but it wasn't Captain Morgan, it was a. It was maybe Moller. It was Moller. Captain Morgan's sidekick. There's yeah, maybe. Lesser. <laughs> and apparently he was quite kindly. He wasn't a yeah. sort of violent person, unlike all the other people she seemed to know. My dad wasn't violent either, by the way. My dad was an accountant. He was the opposite of, and, uh, <laughs> of he, a he sort was of a, vicious trick. I'm wondering if... You know, he was obviously a well-dressed accountant. So, uh, so I'm wondering if your mother... Did she ever think, God, oh, I wish I hadn't have dressed him so well? Because <laughs> did he look handsome in his... I never, you, I, you don't think of your dad as handsome, do you? No, no, God. Oh, God, we're straight. I certainly, we're straight. I certainly <laughs> don't. All I know is that my dad, when he met Anne, his dress kind of style changed completely. And um, I would sort of, on the side, mock what he would wear. I wouldn't mock him directly. He didn't really give a damn. Yeah, okay. He basically was happy to be dressed by yeah. whichever woman he happened yeah. to be with. Yeah, so, sure. Like uh, a lot of blokes. Probably, <laughs> probably. Do you dress Johnny? No. No, he's got a mind of his own, <laughs> haven't he? I'm sure. So, I mean, it's a beautiful piece. Do you wear this Not ring? very much, no. And I feel a little bit complicated about it, especially oh. now given the work that I'm doing, which is really, I think because of where it comes from, I feel that that's a piece of looted Indigenous, you know, history, really. Yeah. And for me to wear that feels a little bit, yeah, I mean... There would have been a time when I think I would have thought, oh, this is very exciting, this is exotic, but I actually think it's... But I could make a piece of work about this, maybe. Uh, I was just thinking that it would be really interesting to know if there's anything left from that hoard, you know, that sits in museums in Ecuador or whatever. So the whole sort of repatriation argument... That um, is fascinating because this piece is old. It's very old. Mm. And it's obviously had an incredible journey and story yes. already. And, yes. and the amazing thing is that its journey will probably continue in some way. Mm. And, and that's kind of a nice thought that it might end up it might um, go back, back somewhere. Home yeah, it might um, go back somewhere. Because it's strange, isn't it? With a bittersweet piece, mm. it's not something that you would wear against your skin and look at and touch and have fond memories. It's no. too important for you to throw it away. Mm. But it, it doesn't have enough love in it for you to want to never take it off and wear it. And you're sort of mm. left in limbo with it slightly, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty amazed. She gave it to me very shortly before she died. And... I was really surprised that she gave it to me because I knew it was something that she absolutely loved. And um, Wow, okay. So there was a kind of tenderness, and I think that happens to people when they reach the end of their lives, a sort of warmth and tenderness that seemed to exude from her, which there hadn't been, you know. We'd had a very difficult, you know, relationship, I'd say. That then adds to the complexity, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. I know. I don't envy you. Well, it's the same with the stamp collection my dad left me. My first thought was, oh, my dad's left us something that meant a lot to him. So 
that means we it meant a lot to him and he left yeah. us you know and yeah. um but then when i look a bit closer at the stamp collection and i see what it is and what it kind of represents in terms of ideas about empire and all of that that's why i made work about it you yeah. know so so in a way i think talking about that complexity is really good it's really interesting i think it's i think it's fascinating and you can see it in your work at, mm. at your degree show Shall we skip? Yeah, so, we, can, we can move on. So we've got a, a bunch of pieces here from your godmother, if I'm not wrong, and they are very bling. Yeah, they're really bling. <laughs> and you just said immediately, I'll just sell them. And, mm. and I was interested in that because that is has traditionally been one of the functions of jewellery. It's portable cash. I don't think it's worth sort of talking too much about no. these pieces because they're just blingy gold chains. Yeah. But my goodness, gold is expensive at the moment. Is it? So Perhaps you'll tell me where I could sell it. There was a time. Yeah, I will. No no worries at all. And you need to, just for everyone, you need to take it to the right place because if you take it to a sort of guy on the high street, they will mm. give you a fraction of the price of its value. Okay. And then they take it in and sell it for twice as much and that's where all their money comes from. And I often think people that are selling gold, you know, they like to use that money for something Mm. special or sentimental and you just want to get the maximum amount. I remember it wasn't that long ago when I had a crisis at work because gold went up to £8 a gram. And I was was like, £8 a gram? That's so expensive. But it just topped. Uh, 50 pounds a gram what? the other day so now's the moment <laughs> don't get mugged on your way home no. uh, price is still going up so no. you want to get a good price for okay. it there's a good nugget or two of gold there so yeah. that's lovely keep them Put sell the them together. you've got a bangle well yeah. it's a really nice pile. Well, I think I might try and photograph that pile okay. so that's nice so we have, that's money we have this ancient piece with its bittersweet mixed emotions Mm. that almost feels a bit like a ball and chain for you because you're, mm. you're now saddled. I presume it was given to you with the best intentions it at was. some sort of appeasement, but actually you're left with a ball and chain. You're left with a dilemma. It's going to sit there and you're going to have to resolve it one day. I must admit, I do love the idea. Perhaps you can go back with the family to South America and take it home would be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it, uh, in some way? I but just think there's a, that there has to be another story to be yeah. told. And it won't be my story necessarily, but it could be something that that ring kind of generates. Maybe you need to talk to Alberta about it. Alberta is Tessa's daughter who's very good friends with my daughter and she's a very, I would say she's a very moral person. She is. She has a very good moral compass and you kind of think maybe she'd be quite good to discuss that and think right what do we want to do with that you know she might have a very fixed opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, I should consult her. It would be it would be interesting to see what she'd say. Um, so we've got this ancient piece. We've got a big pile of blingy gold, which I just could never, ever see you <laughs> no, wearing. Wouldn't be seen dead in it. And then I'm hoping, on a much more sort of joyous note, mm, we, have this, we have this, I hope so, <laughs> because it is such fun. These huge silver... Here, this is a... This is a it is, is, almost looks like some sort of chain that's been made into a necklace, am I right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it just feels nice and it looks nice. And these are South American too. And we have a big, 
thing that looks like a sort of brochy right. type of buckle thing. And some other bits, but I particularly like the earrings which have, which have been made from the, the necklace chain. And then these amazingly, just like, wow, they knew how to design jewellery. We're going to call them handbag earrings, are we? Those are, yeah, I call them handbag earrings. And we have another brooch, and then we have some, some smaller handbag earrings that kind of go with the bigger ones. Yeah. So am I right in saying that this is really your mother? This here? is my grandmother. This is my mother's mother. Via your mother? or, or Via my mother. The maternal line of the family yeah. jewellery. I'm hoping that this is going to be <laughs> more joyous. It's, it is. I mean, it's... I wouldn't call it joyous in itself in that I would say the necklace I remember my mother wearing in the 60s and I think she looked amazing in that. So that would have been worn around her neck or over a black polar neck sweater or something. It was a fancy bit of bling and she had dark hair as well. So she, she wore all that stuff very, very well. Have you ever worn it? I don't know that I have. We'd know you were coming, wouldn't we, if you did? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty heavy. I've worn the big earrings, not the small version of the big earrings. I feel it's um, it's a bit Lord Mayor. What? Well, you'd know you were wearing it because it's, you know... I mean, it's funny because you're actually wearing a very easy-to-wear necklace, which is on a thin chain with mm. two silver discs on it, which is a lovely necklace that just looks... Very casual. Mm. And that big old piece just completely Looks obscures it. Looks a bit it. Lord Mayor. <laughs> I don't know, you know, maybe on a, if, you, if you had a sort of Depends. 1970s dinner party and you could, you know, it could go as costume or something, or, or you could just make know. lots of earrings from it. I don't know. So this jewellery and these bits yeah. were around the house. So mum, she had them almost like a little collection on display, apart from this necklace. And those earrings. Mm. She didn't wear any of the other stuff. It was me who, in the 80s, decided I wanted to make a small version of those handbag earrings. Mm. And I, I commissioned somebody to make those for me. It's and great. I think those are amazing. They're, and, they're, and they're huge. They're not even small. They're they great. are. They're, they're, they're still very huge. Wearable. Do you wear them? I have worn them many times. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I probably don't wear them much these days. Yeah. That's so, so cool. So these are made by the indigenous people who live in the southern part of Chile called the Mapuche. My mum thinks it was made for the tourist market Mm. and therefore it was a kind of commercial thing rather than authentic indigenous like the Inca ring, which is clearly made Mm. as an amulet or something, you know, has cultural relevance. Mm. But the Mapuche people wear a lot of silver. Looks, they wear tons of it. It looks authentic to me and also it looks quite old. And I'm thinking if it was your grandmother's, was there a market for tourism in Chile whenever she bought them? Well, she might have got it from her mother. So they were kind of European Chileans. So they would have settled there in the sort of 19th century. And my grandmother... From? Uh, well, all over, but I think that so there was um, someone from Yorkshire who went down there called Dyson. So that was my grandmother's maiden name. And then there were some Irish people who settled down and Germans and Danish people who settled in the, in, in Chile. So we had thought it would have been Spanish. Um, yeah. In fact, my brother Alistair, who you've met, who's a yeah. complete Hispanophile, would have always fantasised about having Spanish, you know... <laughs> ancestors but uh sadly not they're mostly british and irish what and they was made the lots of money. reason for this there, there was natural resources was it and it was sort of mining and it um, was mining and guano and generally pillaging the yeah so guano was massive 
Do you know what guano is? Yes. I mean, this again could be a family myth. My mum wasn't particularly close to her mother and the stories have died. But um, I think that one of the relatives was a, was a guano, sort yeah. of not millionaire. But I mean, judging by how much they travelled around the globe yeah. and my grandmother, you know, she went skiing in San Moritz and, you know, or whatever. And she glamorous. kind of did, she had an extremely glamorous life. You have glamour on both sides. It's... My dad's family were not glamorous, but then he obviously got the, the trophy wives, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So uh, it's funny because, yes, these pieces don't seem to fill you with love and affection. No, they for, don't. For a, Isn't that for sad? For a warm, nice childhood. Um, it's not sad at all. No, I don't mm. think the connections that we make with our jewellery are at all always positive. Mm. But I'm just thinking that there are they are always important. Yes. And I think we can move on now, Tessa, to your... I'm going to just pick up this piece of paper I dropped on the floor. To your degree, sir. So I said before, we were at a quite similar stage, I think, you and I, where our amazing, wonderful, gorgeous children are all going off and doing their own things. Mm. And we're both creatives, mm. which is great because we've got that. But I don't know about you, but um, I've suffered really badly and difficultly with my kids slowly like having your your, your heart broken because mm. I've got three girls and mm. each year another one of them leaves and it's just traumatic it's just too traumatic so I don't know how you feel about your gorgeous Albert I mean it's lovely to see but also we're left with thinking well who are we and what are, what are we doing yeah yeah no I agree I felt you were dealing with that whole process Mm. in your show slightly am I have I missed yeah, the mark yeah no it's, it's about those um, those transitions rites of passage I yeah. suppose when your parents die and when your children leave and when your children born you know you're you're left with this feeling about who am I and what am I for and what yeah. am I to do with this stuff so in a way I'm interested in legacy and in its broadest interpretation, really. You had stuff. I think the um, the sideboard was relevant because I, I loved it. And in, in this bit of writing that I'm going to ask you to read at mm. the end, was you, you mentioned it, and you have to also deal with everyone else in the family, and there's all mm. those wranglings and everything that's left. It's a very complex um, mm. time of life, isn't it? And we haven't really been trained how to deal with it. I feel like being a young student was much easier than being a, 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 at this point in life. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think it's also because we both work with stuff. We both mm. make stuff with things. our hands, yeah. with things. So things we take quite seriously, whereas I, I'm quite often surprised when I hear people say, oh, I'm not interested in that, you know, that can just yeah. go. Whereas we, I suppose... When you look at an object, you know it's been made and you also know it's been handled and you know it's got a history. Yeah. So, I'm and fascinated. the same with cloth, you know. That's your that's subject. So thing. I use metal, you use cloth. And cloth's mm. such a brilliant medium. And I was just showing you my daughter's work, so she's mm. using cloth. Yeah, beautifully. At the moment, too. From my end, I feel like if you're creative, you're essentially trying to work out what it is to exist and, and what it mm. is to be in the world. And I don't think we'll ever find it out and <laughs> before no. it's too late. But we're, we're, at least we're trying, you know. Yeah. So I do it on a very banal level. You know, I'm, I'm essentially I'm just making jewellery that, that's nice for people. And your show was moving and obviously had a lot more depth. And you've now become like certified hardcore certified. artist. <laughs> I would urge anyone check out Tessa's website and have a look Thank at you. her work. But Tessa, I think we've chatted for ages and we've got these lovely bits of jewellery. 
I was reminded when you were talking that I can't remember some kind of clutter organizey person who I don't really like was saying you know get rid of anything that doesn't bring you joy just have mm. things that bring you joy and my thing is I think the same with you is I'm burdened with so many objects that I cannot separate myself from, from but they don't necessarily bring me joy and I think this has been really nice to talk about that they're important life is black and white it's not just joy there are other things that make us who we are mm. and I think this jewellery kind of has talked to us about that and I feel good about it do you yeah I do good. I really do because feel... I'm glad because I was a bit worried that I that I'm not a sort of jewellery lover if you know what I mean it's not the first thing I I notice about yeah. somebody uh their jewels well it or... but you've got a lot of it and, they, yeah. and it means a lot to you and I think we have a lot of the stories that I've hearing about jewellery they're not just pure joy and smiley mm. there's a lot of pain and heartache right. but it's still as human beings we need to be connected to that in some way I think yeah that's good yeah no I think that's interesting and I feel that about a legacy generally that in a way when you're handed something it's your job you actually you have to act in order to receive it yeah. you can't just passively accept something yeah you know I love uh, that yeah you actually have to say, okay, so this is mine, and what am I going to do with that? Yeah, you have to be an active participant. Yeah, in the, rece- in the receiving of yeah. the of the jewel. It does put or, responsibility. Or the yeah. Um, Tessa, will you please read that? Yes. And I will try not to start sniffing because it sort of oh. got to me. I don't know if it was supposed to make people so emotional, but um, okay. th- this is the writing that was beside Tessa's work at her show, which I really loved. So we're going to call it in, put the kettle on again and make another pot of tea. And then we'll eat these... Lovely looking cakes. Lovely looking tarts. But let's Mm. have this. And thank you very much for being my guest, Tessa. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Um, Okay, so this piece of writing is on the back of the map of my installation. And it's called The Legacies and Their Remnants. A daughter, leaving home for the first time, packs her bags, wondering what to wear during her gap year in Cambodia. A father distributes his British Empire stamp collection amongst his four children, according to territory. A daughter inherits a mahogany sideboard that was purchased by a grandmother she never knew. A mother advises her daughter on how to dress in a country neither of them have ever visited. A daughter receives a Commonwealth stamp collection from a father, which consists of territories in Africa and the Caribbean. A brother and a sister have a disagreement over a sideboard that their late father left to his second wife. That's Thank it. you so much, Tessa. That's brilliant. That so lovely it chokes me up. Does I don't it? Know why. Is it the talking to the daughter about leaving home for the first time, or is it? No, it's because my dad's dead, and you know his workbench is still in my mum's shed. Yes. And all the tools he just used all those tools, and some of the tools were from my granddad, and they're just there. And I'd, I don't know why. No, I don't think I've been able to face it all yet, and it's years. It's been years and years. My and dad died about four years ago, didn't he? I don't know, no, it's longer than that. I don't know. God, I think I'd remember, wouldn't you? Like maybe five or... Mm. um, But also, you know, and then the kids leaving home. And it's Mm. sort of, as your parents die, your children leave you. And it's... I know, it's it's really sad. (laughs) (laughs) Great, all right. We're all left on our own. On that bombshell. Okay, Let's go and get another cup of tea. Thank you, Tess. That's a pleasure.
Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, or for more information about any of the issues we've discussed, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com. Thank you.